What marks a good society is how members of society of that society treat each other. And remember, all societies are very commercial. The Batabaik deal in cattle, and the, there are sums associated with that. Um, just as we have our economy, and um, of course, they make the ultimate adaption by moving in relation to climate conditions. So, yeah, I would only judge any society on how its members treat each other. And the Batabaik do a very, very good job of that. Today's guest is Charles Lane. Charles is a former head of Oxfam's Tanzanian operation, as well as being a philanthropist and an author. In the 1980s, Charles lived amongst the people known as the Barabag. Charles's introduction to the Barabag coincided with a transformative period in their history. They faced pressure from the Tanzanian government and from private interest groups to abandon their traditional customs, an untenable prospect for them. In addition to this, a Canadian-funded wheat scheme helped itself to their land, committing various human atrocities along the way. Charles dedicated much of his early career as a philanthropist and activist to helping the Barabag and documenting their culture. The result was a book which Charles published in 2017, Barabag, Life, Love and Death on Tanzania's Hanang Plains. Charles came onto the podcast to discuss his book and his time on the Hanang Plains. If you like this conversation, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify or follow me on Instagram at Recorded Time Podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. perspective on this i was at the uh dawn service this morning at the caulfield rsl and when the person went up to sing the national anthem they asked everyone to not sing along because of covid restrictions and they let eighty five thousand go to a football match mm. but i was just thinking if if the masks if we don't have to wear the masks anymore surely we're allowed to silly sing the fucking it's inconsistent mm. but, uh, what are your thoughts been on the Restrictions in general and just the whole sort of COVID. Well, necessary. I've complied and uh, happy to. Mm. I've averted getting it so far. Congratulations. I've had my first jab. Oh, how'd that go? Oh, well, fine. I didn't even get a sore arm, but it knocked Jane down for a couple of days. You would have had a strong immune system from your time in Tanzania. I expect, I you know, my African bugs would just say, bring it on, buddy. Uh, <laughs> malaria is more, more what you're used to, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd already read your book uh, <laughs> once before when you first published it, uh, but read it again in the lead up to this. Gee. And, uh, well, most of it anyway, didn't read the, didn't, it was a, it was a big book to carry around. And I know flattery is always embarrassing, but it, um, <laughs> was it an even better read the second time? How did this whole project start and how did you first become involved with the Barabag? Well, I went to uh, Tanzania as a volunteer, 1975, and uh, was entrusted with setting up communal agricultural enterprises in newly formed villages. In Tanzania, they had this movement of Ujamaa, 
where they tried to bring everybody into villages where they could deliver services. Ujamaa is the Tanzanian word for villagisation. No, it's the, it's the uh, Swahili word for familyhood. But it was used politically to mean villagisation, yeah. Um, and in that, in doing that, driving around Tanzania in a Peugeot 404, um, I came across the Battle Bay by chance, you know, the side of the road, and I was impressed by how they looked and wondered who they were and what they were at. And I had a counterpart who accompanied me through that two years as a volunteer and he said, don't, don't have anything to do with them, they're killers. Uh, Mangati, they're, they're feared ones and uh, dangerous. And, you, you know, you, I said, don't be so stupid, Simon. You know, um, no one's born killer, you know. Uh, I can't believe they're dangerous and we can't stop and talk to them or... Anyway, my interest was pricked to the point where I, on one occasion, stopped to talk to a beautiful Barabaic woman who was in her full traditional regalia um, and jewellery and um, she was near the side of the road picking herbs. Anyway, I stopped the car. Simon was furious, thought we were going to be chopped up and I went across and spoke to her. She didn't actually speak to me, although I think she understood me because I did speak Swahili at that point. Um, and she let me photograph her. And, uh, it, you know, she seemed perfectly normal. I couldn't believe that she was part of a communication, a community of wanton murderers. So we moved on. And um, then I read a bit about the Barabaig in colonial literature and they were reported as killers and cattle thieves and the the Germans hung their spiritual leader, a man called Gidamausa, um, and the British hung a few of them as well. So when there was a so-called ritual murder, which is what they are thought to have been doing, um, they just strung them up or strung somebody up to make an example to try and stop it. Were there echoes of that traumatic history when you arrived in Tanzania? How, re how recently had all that happened? Well, that really, um, the last ritual murder occurred about four years before I arrived in Katesh and Hanang district, their home lands. Um, it was, I think, dying out because every time it happened, you know, the Germans and the British and then the independent Tanzanian government sent in the army and um, imposed fines on people. On one occasion uh, when I was in Tanzania but not working with the Barabaig, there was a, a tribal conflict in which the Barabaig killed a lot of Nyaturu tribesmen and... Um, the Tanzanian government sent in the army, arrested the young men, put them in the army uh, and confiscated many hundreds of, oh, thousands of cattle from Barabai homesteads. So they sort of forcefully conscripted yeah. Barabai into their ranks. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They put some in jail. You know, this is the exact same way of dealing with it as the colonial masters had done. 
They didn't understand it. They didn't know how to control it. So they just tried to make examples of the Barabai in this regard. So send in the army, beat them up, confiscate their cattle, send some boys to uh, conscription to try and stop it. When you say you were impressed by the look of the Barabag, they appeared, what, dignified? Well, very beautiful, attractive, um, shy people um, in as much as that when I saw them in town or on the side of the road, you know, they would hesitate to make your gaze uh, and they hung their head. They wore hoods, the men wore hoods, so that you couldn't, their face was in shadow and at first glance you might think they're sinister because they had that look about them, but I learnt that they were shy uh, and they'd been beaten up and beaten up, beaten up by the Maasai, then beaten up by the Germans, then beaten up by the British and were being beaten up by their own government such that um, they tried to avoid contact, you know, and withdraw, do what they needed to do and get away. Um, their reputation grew um, and uh, I read more and more about it in the historical literature and I was fascinated and wondered what was going on and when I had my opportunity to do my study at Sussex University, I chose to do it with the Barabaig. I, My Maasai friends, remembering I'd lived and worked in Tanzania, before, um, my Maasai friends, I'll come and do your work with us, you know, we'll help you, you know, which would have been marvellous and physically and emotionally easy but intellectually much more taxing because so many people had studied the Maasai. Mm, they're, they're a lot the, more well-known. Very well-known, a lot of material published and I would have had to have read it all and drawn comparison and then distinguish my work from their work and, you know, altogether different. So I, I went out on a limb and went and lived with a community hardly been studied because people feared them and didn't like them and uh, uh, it was a great, uh, a great experience. And you talk in the book about the feedback loop of people feared them and so treated them badly and the Barabag consequently were standoffish and aggressive in return and you just talk about that deadly cycle. Between well, it's a cycle that uh, is known to us and that in relation to our Indigenous people or new migrants. Um, racism, which is what it is, um, or prejudice, whatever you want to call it, is always based on ignorance, you know. Um, I'm absolutely convinced we are all the same and we are the product of our our history and our background, um, but it's an insidious cycle if there's ignorance and then there's response to ignorance and reaction and uh, withdrawal, sometimes pushback, and, of course, that's very disliked. Um, but these people are just trying to retain their position and their dignity and f when they feel threatened they get to the point where they resist. Do you think racism is more a consequence of ignorance or hatred, though? Because I, I've often felt that most, as, as dumb as anyone can be, racism is such a uh, flawed way of thinking that I've kind of thought that it's just a byproduct of hatred, and it's almost like I'm going to pretend like you're inferior to me because I dislike you so much that I'm willing to be disingenuous about our relationship to one another. 
In other words, the hatred one feels towards another person for whatever reasons supersedes the racial slur, if that makes sense. Certainly the hatred uh, comes before the racial Mm. slur, but I think the hatred is born of ignorance. Why would you hate someone? Um, It's because they're different or they do something differently or they threaten, they appear to threaten you um, or take something from you in migration terms, your job or whatever, um, I think ignorance is the the precursor the of hatred the gateway to that it. manifests mm. itself with racism. That's my view. Mm. Describe your first day with the Barabag then. Well... Um, Do you mind if I smoke, by the way? No, no. Um, when I first went out to find the Barabag and try to locate myself amongst them so that I could do my study. Um, Because I'd worked with Oxfam for many years and travelled around Tanzania and other countries, I understood that a very good place to stay when you're out is at missions. So when I first went out to the Batabai, I stayed at the local Catholic mission and uh, that was relatively comfortable and secure um, it, it was a, a sort of um, headquarters in which I could drive out into Barabai country and s- go to a well or go to a market and meet Barabai and chat to them and anything. Uh, but in that process, uh, I was advised by a Barabai man who lived near the mission, who I'd come to know, who was a teacher and... Um, Whilst he was a modern, well, he lived a contemporary life in Western terms, um, not a traditional life in Batabaig terms. He said to me, Charles, you will learn nothing about the Batabaig living in the mission. And um, I really probably knew this, but I didn't know what the next step would be. Anyway, he kindly said he would help me find a place among the Batabaig so that I could start learning from them, with them, uh, without carrying the burden of being a white fellow coming out of a mission. The Batabai initially were very sus about me. They wondered why a white, a single white man would be coming out to, to and fraternise with them. Um, they thought I must be a missionary and, you know, obviously staying at the mission, this, this rather reinforced that perception, Uh, they thought I might also be coming to cut down their trees and harvest their timber from their country, their beautiful hardwoods, um, or shoot their wildlife because there was wonderful wildlife. Trophy hunting and stuff. Yeah. Mm. Um, The fact that I wasn't married reinforced the view that I might really be a missionary I was staying in a Catholic mission and the padre, Dan Node, who lived in that mission... Um, with his had, baboon. Yeah, with the baboon. He <laughs> tried to proselytise the Batabai and wasn't succeeding very well. Um, other white men had tried, had come out and brought Christianity to the Batabai with some success. And interestingly, that success was tempered by the fact that they would behave like Christian congregation and go to church and everything, but they fully lived out their traditional religion at the same time. 
So I've learned, you know, Africans certainly and probably most Indigenous groups um, are pragmatic about this. They're happy to explore Christianity, the introduced religion, see the benefits, education, health and things that came with the missionaries, but they never fully surrendered their traditional religion. They're almost more open to our culture than we are to theirs. Well, yes. Um, they are better able to adapt and adopt than we are, yes. And that's born of our arrogance that we, we think we are the best, we know the way, the best way. Well, I, was, I wanted to ask you, what do you think is the mark of uh, a great society, the degree to which it is sustainable <clears throat> Uh, in all kinds of ways or the degree to which it advances its uh, technology, its um, economics, its power in general? Well, um, our society is only more sophisticated in material terms, in technology and uh, the like. Um, they are no more sophisticated in their social and religious sense. Um, if you've done any reading about our Indigenous Australian cultures and where they live with what's called the skin system, you will find that incredibly complex. And the Batabaig have similar complexities around clan and ownership um, and they had a very sophisticated uh, dural system so they had uh, the Batabai, you know, you might think they're half-naked men and women tr living in the bush as nomads in an unsophisticated way, but they probably deal with um, the, 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 uh, the law and oversee conduct of their society better than we have. For example, they have a national assembly, they have a clan council, they have a neighbourhood council and interestingly, and I've been tempted to write about this in the press given the current discussion going on in this country at this time, they have a women's council which is only made up of women and its responsibility is to adjudicate offences by men against women and um, they have enormous authority. The word or the judgement of that council is extremely powerful and men quake. If, the, if a man knows he's being assessed by the women's council, the Gidegwagedegadimp, um, they quake. They, they might only receive a fine. They could be um, ostracised out of the community, which is death, a sort of death, or they could be cursed, which is the worst thing of all, and that is death. Maybe not physical death, but it certainly comes and probably comes a lot quicker than would otherwise be the case. So um, the level of sophistication uh, is not confined to Western society by any means, certainly materially, but even that, um, if you look at the pyramids, you look at the... Um, the stone structures in Zimbabwe, um, they can match Western technology given their resources uh, pretty well. But socially, and to come back to your question about what 
marks a good society, its sustainability or whatever. I would say it's about what marks a good society is how members of society of that society treat each other. So forget the material um, aspect and remember all societies are very commercial. The Batabai deal in cattle and the, there are sums associated with that um, just as we have our economy and... Um, of course, they make the ultimate adaption by moving in relation to climate conditions. Um, so, yeah, I would only judge any society on how its members treat each other and the Batabaig do a very, very good job of that. Uh, and I got the sense in reading the book that they were uh, more uh, apprehensive before making any kind of decision than perhaps a Western society would be. Even, even your presence there was something that had to be deliberated upon uh, and agreed upon before they could continue with that. So what was, to go further into the story, what happened next after you um, had stayed at the uh, so mission out? Mission out my friend Pius uh, suggested I'd learn nothing about the Batabag if I stayed at the mission. He said he would help me find a place amongst the Batabaig. His first offer was actually to locate me at his father's homestead uh, and we went out and um, I was introduced to his father's family. Pierce was, wore Western clothes and taught um, Western education in the school system of Tanzania, but he had very strong connections into his own community and he was respectful of his own culture. Uh, and other, the other thing he had was because of his Western education, he understood why a young Aussie bloke might come out amongst them to do study. Um, the Batterbike had no idea what this was about, but he knew. He knew about academic study and um, he knew why I was there and was happy to support me. So he was a good mediator between Wonderful, you wonderful connection. He, he was the first step um, in my approaching the Batabaig to stay with them. So I spent my first night with the Batabaig outside his father's homestead and that's where I pitched a tent and <laughs> put a, a thornbush fence around my tent which wouldn't have stopped anything, not a possum, let alone a lion or a potential murderer. Remember at this point I hadn't, hadn't resolved whether they were murderers and if they were, who they might murder. I had heard they'd killed a European. Um, I think it was four years, just four years before I arrived, I learnt unresearched that he was in fact an Indian they'd killed. But, you know, they used the word wazungu to cover not only European, although strictly speaking wazungu are Europeans, but it, it's broader than that. Yeah, it, covers all it includes strangers and, you know, in this case I learnt that it was an Indian man they'd killed and they might well have had good reason to, I don't know. Um, so here I am in this tent. Um, my little compound, which I'd created with these thorn bushes, um, was filled with little kids. My car was in this compound. I built the fence around the car and the tent and there was a little open area where I lit a fire, cooked my dinner, and I was surrounded by kids all squatting on their haunches watching everything I did, absolutely eyes 
speeding down on every action I took and the food that I produced you must out have, of tins. You must have been so interesting to them. I bet. Um, and, of course, I was as interested in them as they were and I, but at this point I just um, got about my daily um, evening affairs. And Were you a bit self-conscious and a bit uh, well, scared? At, on, well, on the they're only literally. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I wasn't very self-conscious at that point, but... Um, then it came time to retire and I, I put all the cans I'd opened and other paraphernalia related to my dinner to one side and every piece of it went. The kids took everything. <laughs> and um, they were, it was getting, it was dark by now and they were called back into the homestead. I heard a woman shout out and all the kids got up and left me. Were the uh, parents quite worried about uh, their children spending time with... They didn't seem to. Um, I, scared, I expect my introduction by Pius uh, was such that they were told that Charles is a good man, there's nothing to fear from him, etc., etc. So I, I don't know. Um, I don't know what Pius told them, but I was well received. Anyway, the kids were called back and... A Barabag homestead is a very um, strong, fortified um, corral, uh, lion, theoretically lion-proof. It's made of thorn tree branches. They're about 20 feet thick at the base and they go up about 20 feet. Um, and uh, this was good defence against lions or leopards or hyenas but also enemies pretty hard to climb through a thorn. And these thorns are sharp right. and the trees that they are on are hard, hardwood, very hard. One is called budjamod, which means the beater of the axe. It's so hard. The axe doesn't beat the tree. The tree beats the right. axe. Yeah, I saw, I saw a photo uh, in the book and you've got sort of uh, tree columns set up uh, sort of like a foot apart and then there's the thorns uh, beyond that so yeah. it's impossible for someone to yeah. get through. That's right. Uh, so just how dangerous is it with wildlife in uh, Tanzania? Like, how many lions would you see, uh, you know, in a month in Tanzania? I never saw oh, in ta I, Well, of course, I was I acted as a safari guide and took tourists out to the great national parks of Tanzania and saw many, many lions and saw lions kill. And But um, among the Barabaiga, I only ever heard lions and I also see what lions did. So I, I help transport lion victims, you know, young herds boys or women who'd gone to collect water into the bush who'd been attacked by a lion and take them into hospital. And so um, I knew they were out there. I could hear them, particularly at night. What noise did they? <laughs> Is that the noise they make? <laughs> yeah. And, um, That's a good impersonation, Charles. <laughs> they used to walk around these homesteads and... Um, they, they sounded very near, but I learnt that um, in my safari work uh, that they can be quite a distance away and sound very close. They have the most extraordinary larynx lions, uh, one of the most complex and resonance. It makes the most extraordinary resonant sound. Anyway, so I never saw a, a lion with the batabaga, and I'm glad of that. 
um, but they, they certainly were around. But they, they were known, the Barabag are known as uh, great lion hunters, aren't they? Well, yes. Um, I don't know about known, but I learned that they, uh, um, unlike the Marseille, they don't go to kill the lion to prove manhood or uh, they go to, they kill lions that are preying on their livestock or their or they've taken a, a human and they go out and hunt that lion just with spears just with spears and uh, what they do they track the lion they then surround it so there be there may be as many as 50 men young men and men they would track the lion and they would determine where he was in, and the lion would go to ground, you know. The lion would get on to the fact that he's being tracked and he'd see people coming he'd go to ground one way or another. He, he might scamper on a little while but the tracking still continues. So he'd go to ground and then they would t- determine where he was and surround him and then close th- their circle. Now what happens is, of course, that uh, eventually the lion realises he's surrounded or she is surrounded, and make a run for it. They say the lion looks at all the people who are surrounding him and determines where the weak link is. It may be a a physical weak link, that there's a gap somewhere, or it may be he sees in the eyes... One of the younger Barabag or or, something. Mm. Or a Barabag who doesn't seem to have the fortitude to face him. And the, the lion makes a run for it. Now... If you're lucky enough for the lion to come at you, and you get you draw first blood, lucky enough. If, well, I say that <laughs> uh, pejoratively. Um, if you can draw first blood, uh, you are deemed the killer. Although inevitably, the first spear doesn't kill a but lion. It's not, but it's not just pejoratively, then, is it? Because as you're hailed as a hero within the Barabag, if yeah. you if you take down a lion, absolutely, and you only have to be the one that. Um, draws first blood. But the minute the lion attacks, everybody descends on it, you know. And the person who takes the charge is usually very badly mauled because a lion can do a lot of damage in 10, 20, 30 seconds. Tear tear your bowel out, you know, rip your arm off, garrot you, you know. So if you survive it, you're lucky, and if you survive it, you're a hero. Yeah. Mm. So just getting back to my first night. So the kids have been called in. I hear them shutting the, the gate of the homestead, and that's a big palaver. They have to lay all these um, thorn tree branches in a particular way to close it, and once it's closed, it's impenetrable. Um, and I'm now on the outside. <laughs> I've got my little thornbush fence you could step over. And um, I've got to say, it's a pretty pathetic uh, yeah, fence completely. that you put up it's, from the It was photo only actual. symbolic, and I, I, I had to do it from my own symbolic. peace of mind. I had to delineate this was my. So um, I, you know, did my ablutions, brushed my teeth and whatever, and uh, crawled into my tent and got into my sleeping bag. It's quite cool there because it's quite a height. Um, How hot does it get during the day? Oh, well, it would get... Yeah, 30, not 40, 30. That's not bad. No, it's pretty nice and it, it, the evenings are cool. Um, so I'm just 
nodding off and I hear noise outside the tent. I thought, oh, my God, you know, this has come early. Day one. Is this a lion or is this a killer, you know? And it's an interesting uh, – before I'd crawled in, of course, I looked out at the sky and, and the, you know, it's very beautiful and I can – the moon's providing backlight to these glorious African – fever trees, you know, these umbrella trees, these thorn trees, Acacia tortillas, and it's a beautiful sight and I'm looking over the plains, you know, as far as the eye can see, and I'm in heaven. So I'm in my, now in my tent, I'm zipped up, I'm zipped up, I'm wanting to go to sleep, it's been a big day, and I hear noise and I think, my God, you know, might all be over. And interestingly, I wasn't, I wasn't panicked I was kind of resigned to my fate. When I went out there, of course, I had to ponder all these things. And I was, you know, when you're young, you just take these risks. Um, anyway, I lay motionless trying to interpret what I was hearing, thinking would a lion actually come into a tent. Anyway, it was quickly answered because I heard the zip of the tent going up. Oh, my God. You know, what's this? Who's this? And, um, uh, you know, it crossed my mind he might be coming to kill me. Uh, and then as the tent end was open, a spear point came in. I thought, well, this is it, you know. How am I going to roll away out of this, you know? What sort of scrap am I going to have in a two-man tent with my all my gear? You know? Against a lion killer. Against a man who's prepared to kill a lion. Anyway, uh, then the black hand came in and then a body came in um, and he smiled at me and then wrapped himself like a mummy in his cloak and lay down beside me on the ground. Did he say anything or? Didn't say a word. And suddenly I found myself sharing my tent with a total stranger and um, we, we both went to sleep. But, but why did he come in? Well, I learned later because when, when I spoke to people afterwards, I said, this bloke came into my tent last night, lay down next to me. And it was explained to me that he was instructed to do that to protect me. So I actually had a guard sleeping beside me. So if a lion had indeed poked around or a man had come to try and deal with me, at least I would have had an, had an ally. <laughs> It's a pretty exciting night. So they were immediately, uh, you were aware that they were a lot more hospitable than you'd been led to believe and that their reputation didn't match your experience with them. And I learnt that they were more they were more worried about me being killed by someone and them being blamed. So I was very well protected at all times, particularly when I went out distances. I was always accompanied by uh, warriors to care for me, make sure I was safe. Mm. So what happened next? Well, um, I spent some days, maybe a week there, I can't remember now, and um, walked around, met people. There was one occasion when I was trying to track down a, um, a dam that had been built by the British. I had old colonial maps of the area and things, and I, this, I tried to identify this dam that had been built by the Brits and it wasn't far from where I had my little camp. And on my way there, the grass was very high. I could hardly see the dam wall when I came up to it. And as I came up to it, 
I saw across this tall grass a Batabag man looking fearsome, as they did, hood over, you know, his face almost in shadow, armed with a very serious-looking spear, and I thought, oh, God, I've walked into it now, you know. Um, anyway, um, I didn't know. I thought, I'm not going to run and take a spear in the back. I'll go forward and I'll greet this man. And that's what I did, and he greeted me back. And um, Could you – did you speak their dialect or did they speak Swahili or – No, the, well – I only spoke Swahili, and uh, they their language Tatoga is unwritten, and uh, I had to learn it as best I could. But I worked in Swahili, and he he knew Swahili. That man I met many times after that, in and around the area, and we both laughed about the day. He he was as worried about me as I was of him. Most white men carry guns out there. And uh, I didn't have a gun with me then, but uh, he um, he was as worried as I was of him. Was it, of him. It's one of the things that I think is so good about uh, your book and how well paced it is. Is that every story that you recount is a perfect. It, it perfectly explains how how their reputation was was incorrect. How they were as people was uh, not how they were perceived by the outside world. I think that. Uh, it, uh, if I've done anything, anything for the Batabaig internationally is perhaps open people's minds to the fact that they're just like everybody else. They, they are perceived to behave in a way and they do behave in certain ways that are the product of what's happened to them. And, you know, their life history is not very pleasant. They live a very hard life. They're, they're persecuted. There's a lot of prejudice against them. Um, they've not seen the benefits afforded by many other Tanzanians. Health, education and um, uh, in a material sense, uh, you know, livestock medicines and the like. So um, they're pretty disaffected and they behave as such. It also seemed meeting that uh, guy by the dam and uh, the, the first woman that you pass... It's interesting how if I was to run into a Westerner in a Western country, there's almost sort of nervous social cues that you have to give, you know, greeting each other or just saying something to, to fill the silence, whereas they don't seem to feel that obligation to feel that silence and they just take everything on face value. They'll literally just, you know, someone's looking at me, I look at them. Well, interestingly, they're much more guarded than... Um you would think their greeting process can take minutes. Um, so I was fortunate. They was when I approached them initially. You know, a European man gets out of his car and approaches them. Um, they were as intrigued by what was going on. We could speak Swahili, and obviously I knew the Swahili greetings, which are very courteous. What does Swahili sound like? How do you, how do you say hello in Swahili? Hujambo. Hujambo. That means what matter, how matters. What's going on. Yeah. What's, yeah. Yeah. what's up? <laughs> what's up? Um, so, but there are many subsequent, you know, uh, you ha- in the Batabaig you have to say eight or nine things and you have to ask about the family and the weather and the livestock and everything else and everything is good. 
even if it isn't. But do you eventually say, surely you eventually get into what isn't good and what isn't? Well, yeah, the answer is good, 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 good. But there's a hint generally. Um, You know, lakini means but. So eventually you get to, you know, um, how the livestock, oh, they're good. And eventually they, but, you know, there's a bit of, well, a lion took one of my... Just Cars. casually. <laughs> yeah, or or I've lost a few for from disease. Eventually you get to the truth of what their position is. Mm. The initial um, response is always good. Mm. You're always good until you dig deeper. So you'd spent first night in the tent, then you uh, went to the dam where you met uh, that man. Yeah. What happened next? Well, uh, that week with... Pierce's family were just me walking around exploring and talking and looking and wondering what the hell I was going to do. <laughs> and then, uh, of course, I kept in touch with Pierce and uh, Pierce said, well, you know, um, I've arranged for you to meet a very important man and um, I think you will f- be able to live deep amongst the Barabai, in the heart of Barabai country, and I thought that was a wonderful piece. And that's what you wanted. That's what I wanted. Mm. I wanted to be away from, you know, Western influence as far as it was possible. I wanted to get into the real Barabai. For for academic purposes or just because you were Oh, yes. I I thought the more I learn about their traditional lives, the more I could explain what was happening in their contemporary lives. So um, Pierce arranged for me to meet um, a spiritual leader, Gidugula, and a a village leader who's a Batabag man who um, had been deemed to be a village leader. So he had political authority contemporary political authority, although he was very traditional-looking. And Gidigala, was a, he was the spiritual head of the Arajiga clan. So none of this meant much to me at the time, and I didn't even know that of him when I met him. So what we agreed to do is the, the monthly market, which is um, a bit like a farmer's market here, but far more interesting, <laughs> um, I was to meet Pierce and Pierce and I, he would introduce me to these men and we would discuss about my longer term and the, and the, domicile. the farmer's market was in Hanang? In, just out on the edge of Hanang, yeah. the town. Oh, no, on the edge of Katish town, Katish. which is the capital of Hanang. Right. So um, looks like a Roman encampment because there are tents and smoke coming out. You know, traders everywhere, lots of men with spears. It was a wonderful sight. Um, but uh, I was very hungry often and, uh, of course, I ate roast meat and chapatis and sweet tea at these markets. Uh, I didn't have much reason to buy much because I used to buy traditional sandals there and sometimes cloth, but otherwise uh, there was nothing much there of interest to me. And, and what's your connection to uh, the outside world at this stage? I can't- how easy is it to, like, like, how are you communicating with people back in London? How are you com- communicating with your family? Are you communicating with your family? No. Um, I had a brother, word processor. This is how long ago it was. The screen on it had 15 characters. That's as big as it had. A line of 15 characters was the screen. And I used to type letters and the, the characters would pass across these 15 uh, 
digit screen and then 15 characters so you can say hello hi you can yeah and then it would move on so then you'd have a comma and then you'd have the next 15 characters and then it would just go as you're typing it would just go across you could correct you go back and correct but eventually you type up a page and then you could press print you put a piece of paper in and it would print out that page you know all these 15 digit characters would print out in 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 correspondence and that's what i used to send back to uh england but why couldn't you why couldn't you just use a typewriter well, I needed – well, this was basically – this was a next-generation typewriter. Um, so you'd, you'd write – you'd have 15 characters, it would print down the paper and you could write another 15 characters and that would go into the same piece of paper. So, yeah, there'd be – yeah, there'd be the first 15 characters, then the second, then the third, then the fourth. So when it printed out, it looked like a normal letter, but it, you could only do it 15 characters at a time. And it was just more portable than a typewriter. It was portable. Mm. It did rely on battery – um, uh, why did I choose that than a typewriter? And really typewriter's a bit heavier, aren't you? heavier and pain in the ass. Yeah, dust and I don't know. Anyway, I took a brother word processor out with me, and I corresponded with my supervisor through mail. And in those days, mail was about all we had, and letters did arrive. When is this, as well? By the way, this is when you when you first meet the Barabag. What year? 86, 86, I think, yeah, yeah. 85 or 86, I'd have to look now. Um, so uh, your question to me, how, and I, my family I just had hardly any contact with. Maybe if I went into Arusha or Dar es Salaam, I would, might write a quick aerogram and post it to my What's mother. What's an aerogram? <laughs> Aerograms are airmail letters that are they're pre-stamped and you just f- write on them fold them up and you can post it. You don't need a stamp because the aerogram carries the stamp. Right. And you so they're very for, convenient You have to pay way. for that as like a membership you pay, or something. Yeah, you pay for the piece of paper with the stamp on it. Uh, it's printed on it. So you pay the value of the stamp basically. And you can just write on it, fold it up, lick it close, and you, you, can, you put the address on the outside and you can put the sender's address on the other side. And that's how I used to correspond with my family, although not very much. I put my mother, I know, through some heartache by being absent, living with ritual murderers in deep, darkest Tanzania. Did you feel quite isolated or was were you deliberately trying to isolate yourself? Well, um, I was busy, you know. I didn't want to particularly isolate myself, but I was intent on learning as much as I could. And... I mean, academic study, it's not all beer and Skittles. I mean, it's there's a lot of pressure to learn something. And, of course, they don't give you a PhD in, unless you advance man's understanding, mankind's understanding of an issue. Um, so it's no good just – I mean, the book is a story, but my thesis is an analysis. Mm. And uh, it take, and what was, what, takes a lot of doing. What was the point of your thesis? What were what was the main argument? Well, the the, the point of the thesis was to um, reveal the costs and benefits of uh, change for the Barabaig as nomads. So I was looking at villagization and government policy in relation to their traditional lives and how it affected them and their environment. So their way of life. 
and the environment in which they relied. I was looking at the impact of change. And, and why was villagisation an untenable prospect for the Barabag? The, the Barabag live in um, semi-arid setting. Uh, some of it is very fertile. The weather, the w- rainfall is minimal uh, and it fails, a bit like some of central Australia here. Um, and to survive on that country, you have to move about. So you, if it rains over there, you soon after the rain, you go there to get the new shoots. And um, the seasons are such that you there's a broad pattern of migration as, you know, the, the rains open up. Their most rich uh, resources were the Muhajaga country, which is very fertile land, but had no permanent water. So they could only go onto it when it rained and filled puddles. When there are no puddles, it was too hard to exploit, even though it was the richest resource. And what would the Tanzanian government have been asking of them in the process of villagisation? They wouldn't be able to do any of that? They wouldn't be able to...? No, they try, They invited them to villagise, to move into villages. Um, so they bring a bulldozer and bulldoze a main street and they would allocate plots of land along the street. Uh, they promised to build a um, infrastructure, a school and a post office and maybe a health clinic or... Uh, whatever, police station maybe, and people were thought would come, you know, abandon their traditional way of life and the hard life of trying to earn a living off the land and all come together in this wonderful village where everyone would be able to look after each other. Now, for the Barabag, this was particularly difficult because to exploit their country, they had to move around it. It wasn't not all of it was rich enough to cultivate, so they exploited it with livestock. That was the ecologically best option for them. So when they drove them, when they didn't come voluntarily into these villages, the government got cross. And in fact, Nereri, the president of the time, made a speech... President of Tanzania. Of Tanzania. He, He made a speech publicly, and it's quoted where he said... We, you know, will no longer tolerate resistance to villagisation. Everyone must villagise. And so the bureaucracy took his word literally and they employed the army to drive people into villages. And they did that to the Barabag. So the Barabag were forced into a village and uh, they stayed there as long as they could. They were beaten if they resisted. So they'd settle down, they'd build a very temporary hut and they would stay there and their cattle would come and go each day as far as was possible. But it didn't work because some of these villages were very badly sited, couldn't sustain permanent habitation, wasn't rich enough. Um, And very soon the Barabag said, if we stay here, you know, our cattle will die. And, of course, they denuded whatever resources were there around the village anyway. So that was being turned into a dust bowl. Mm. So they voted with their feet and just walked away. Um, And in the the example I quote um, in the book is where, you know, on the way out they lit lit 
a fire to all their dwellings and burnt the village down, as village as far as it was, and went back to their traditional way. That's another reason they were disliked, particularly by the government, because they were thought to be recalcitrant. You know, they wouldn't modernise, they wouldn't settle, they were wedded to this primitive nomadic life. Do, do you think that the term modernisation is somewhat weaponised by governmental and developmental agencies in Africa? Absolutely. So they say that you're not modernising and that, justif- in their mind, justifies uh, their harsh treatment of groups like the Barabai. Yes, and obviously justified taking of their land, the best of their land. So if you're just going to wander around with your livestock over these very rich and fertile resources, um, we'll take it off you and put it to p- better use. Uh, sorry, Charles, do you mind if I just quickly go to the bathroom? No. And we're back. So where were we? Um, the predilection of government to try and force people to modernise and then when they don't then take or at the same time take their land to put it to better use. So do you think, I mean, you'd obviously understand better than most, but do you think governments like the Tanzanian government go in with the best of intentions in that or it's... It's their way or the highway as far as they look at it. I think uh, Nereri was well-intended. Um, he had quite a good reputation yes, internationally, didn't he? Yeah, he was uh, an intelligent um, intellectual who was found out on this one. I mean, he was very good on many things, but he didn't understand nomadism. He came from a community that was settled and cultivated crops And um, he wanted Tanzania to become modern and benefit from what Western society could offer. Um, And he wasn't going to put up with people who wouldn't toe the line. He, He regarded them as recalcitrant and needed to be forced to do it, not understanding the ecology, how complex it was, and that not everything could be villagized. And largely in Tanzania, a lot of people have gone back now to their more traditional. So there are villages, some are successful, very many are just nominal, and people come and go, and they they were forced when they villagized to give up their traditional plots of land, and obviously they've now drifted back to those plots. That's quite, many, many. It's almost quite nice to hear. So. They've just gone back to their nomadic way of life, a lot of the tribes in Tanzania. Well, the nomadic ones have. Um, Much of Tanzania has been settled, but people are maintaining their traditional access to crop crop lands and their, their resources, water and otherwise, that made up their traditional holdings. So you were at the farmer's market uh, and then what happened? So uh, Pierce, we meet there. Pierce takes me to the side of the market. There are lots of men huddled talking, you know. There are cattle buyers and cattle sellers and God knows what else. There are little groups of people meeting and we went into the the fringe of the market and squatted on our haunches, the three of us, Pierce, no, four of us, and we talked and Pierce um, introduced me to Gidigla and said to me that Gidigla has agreed to allow me to live with him. 
And uh, I was completely shocked and uh, I, I inquired to get be sure I'd heard it correctly and I looked at Gilligler to make sure he spoke Swahili to make sure this is really what he meant. And I pondered what, what uh, Pierce might have told him. But anyway, uh, Gilligan was quite clear, yes, I could come and live with him. And uh, um, it was agreed um, and uh, we ultimately drove to Gilligan's homestead, which was a long way away at a place called Mureru. And he, well, in Mureru village area, not of no village as such, but the area that was politically nominated to be called Mureru, but within this large area, many square kilometres, there was a hill called Laguajand and Gidegla's homestead was on that. When I say a hill, it was just a rise. Um, and uh, I thanked him and um, I took Pierce home and then drove back out myself. And... Uh, to to Laguajand? To Laguajand and I, you know... I asked to enter the homestead and met Gidegler and said, could I put my tent or where would I think I, I wonder, probably asked him where he thought I could put my tent outside where my car was parked, you know. And he said, no, 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 no. I, you were going to come and live with us inside the homestead. So I was absolutely over, overcome really because this was the best possible. So, so nice uh, of them. Extraordinary. He is an extraordinary man. Gidigala. Gidigala. Extraordinary man. He was my age, almost exactly, but he was so much older and wiser than I. And um, he um, got some young men to tear open a part of the wall of one part of the homestead called the Buhaled, which is where the dry cows and the donkeys and the bulls are kept, so I could drive my car in. And then it was closed. And uh, he said he would build me a hut, but meanwhile I would pitch my tent in the Mohalad next to my car. Um, and, and, and the Mohalad is uh, within one of those structures that you described before with the massive fence. Yes, so keep, yeah. that's right. So a, a Barabai homestead is like a kidney. It's got the semod, which is where the milk cows and the young stock are kept, and then there's the other lobe, which is the muhalid, where the dry cows and the donkeys and the bulls are kept. And the muhalid is occupied by the son of the owner who doesn't have enough money to go and live on his own. So he hasn't got enough cattle or hasn't got a wife or enough wives to make an independent economic unit independent of his father. So... Um, they, they live in, they're offered the Mahalad. So they, often the sons, a son, the eldest or otherwise, lives in the Mahalad until such time as he inherits or steals enough cattle to set up his own homestead. Um, and I was accorded this and I had no idea of the significance of it. It's why my Barabag name is Gidu Mahalad, he who lived in the Mahalad. But this was accorded to sons of the owner only. So they'd taken you in as a son. They'd taken, yeah. They treated me like a son. And they did build me a hut. And uh, I moved, disbanded my tent and moved into the hut. So they're they're quite 
the Barabag are quite an interesting hybrid of agriculturalists and nomads, is that correct? Well, that's right. Though they did cultivate. Uh, they had outside the homestead, they had a little garden where they grew onions and sometimes tomatoes and things. And then they would have a farm plot some distance away, usually where it's more fertile, where they planted sorghum or millet. Um, what, what's, so, what's sorghum so, and millet? Well, these are great, traditional African grains. Yeah, not wheat and barley. Corn, they, they do grow maize, what we call maize as well. Um, and so they were a hybrid in as much as they had a homestead where they and land around it which they used, but when conditions were such, young men would be t- took the herd away and they might go a long way, days away weeks away to look after the herd and take their herd to good pastures. So in a drought, the cattle would go a long distance and they would leave five, six, ten cows behind so that the the owner and his wives and the children had milk on a daily basis. So a lactation, you know, lasts nine months, ten months, uh, so they'd benefit from that cow's milk for that period. And so, it would be staggered. So, you know, there'd be cows halfway through their lactation, others coming to an end. And once a cow's lactation was over, she'd be moved on into the dry herd, the dry cow herd. So what was their diet like and what was your, what was your reaction to it physically? Well, um the diet was pretty rudimentary, uh, not very flavoursome. I did love the, the yoghurt. So in my hut and in every Batabai hut, woman's hut, they had calabashes with milk in different stages of rancidity. Um, rancidity is a good word. <laughs> I, uh, the one I liked was called a rirang, which was something between fresh milk and rotten cheese mm. um, and that's what I used to drink in the morning even today and I will tomorrow morning I'll have a I say to Jane I'm going to have a Barabaik breakfast which is a glass of kefir that's what it was like kefir beautiful and that's all I have in the morning it's a glass of kefir and that's all I had as a Barabaik was a glass of rirang which is yeah yogurt kefir now uh we might have lunch, particularly if someone was visiting us, we might have lunch. If, if someone important was visiting us, they'd, we might kill a chicken. Otherwise, it would be dried meat, reconstituted, boiled up with ghee. From what, cows? Yeah, cows Cattle. meat. Oh, they, did, they ate wildlife as well. They ate antelope. Um, but the night meal would be... A, meat stew invariably with uh, stiff maize porridge and milk, fresh milk. Was that because you until recently had your uh, family farm in Victoria and I know you uh, kept cattle. Had, did your farm keep cattle before you went to Tanzania at the time? Yep. So was it quite interesting for you going from a, a, a Western uh, farm structure of keeping cattle to uh, one for the Barabag? Mm. And uh, this is something that enabled me to engage with the Barabai talking cattle. Was your knowledge of yes. cattle to begin with? Yeah, and I 
help them get hold of different um, livestock drugs. Um, and they were very understanding about, you know, uh, trenches and uh, antibiotic treatments for different ailments. What, what could you teach them about uh, keeping cattle and what could they teach you about keeping cattle? Was there, a, was there, are there, are there many differences between the way we keep cattle in uh, first world Western countries and the way they keep cattle? Yes. Um, we, uh, we tend to confine cattle and uh, the fundamental difference is that we can find cattle and to keep cattle on the same place at all times, you have to have only so many cattle as did not, do not denude that piece of land. So you have to pitch your, cat, your stocking rate at a certain level. And what is that? So well, it, it, how, much, uh, how much land would one uh, cattle get or one cow get? Well, it depends on the country. You might get, you know... Some parts of Australia, you know, one beast per 10 hectares. And in other places you could get two or three cattle per hectare. For the Barabag, this wasn't a discussion because they didn't confine their cattle to one place. They moved their cattle. And that's all part of their reaction against villagization, I guess, as well. Yes, they they, they, ecologically they had to move and yep. exploit resources when they were at their best and move when they were denuded or before they denuded them. The other thing was they, the Barabayag understood that in good times you build up the herd, the minute things get hard you get rid of them. As in kill them for meat? Or sell them. Sell them. So uh, they have a boom and bust economy. And we've done, a, you know, the I became a part of a whole group of academics in Britain who studied studied nomads and livestock, nomadic livestock production. And those studies showed that that boom and bust strategy that was employed by the Barabayag and the Dinka and the Nua and the Maasai and all these nomadic groups was more efficient than pitching the stocking rate at a sustainable level for a confined piece of land. And that was a good argument against villagisation then, it was showing how, well, they how productive they were. They knew this intuitively mm. but it, it wasn't, published in, to the point where governments understood it. Now, even when it was published and, you know, the institute that I worked for, the International Institute for Environ Environment and Development and the Institute of Development Studies, both of which I was involved with, published this data, it wasn't received well by governments. Just because it went against what they wanted? Well, you know, yeah, I... I <laughs> It's still resisted to this day, despite the knowledge we have that these nomadic systems where the peripatetic movement of li livestock around a large area what is... Does, what does peripatetic mean? Mobile. Mobile. Varied, varied and mobile movement. Um, it didn't go down because, of course, they didn't want the Barabayag or anybody else commanding access to vast land resources because they wanted some of pieces of it for commercial cropping exploitation. And um, they said, of course, these Barabai just wander aimlessly about. It looked like that, but I learnt and I've pub shown that they didn't wander around aimlessly. There was very clever movement uh, and to underpin a sustainable system. But when... 
the government came and also private farmers came and took pieces of land out of that system, the whole system collapsed. And then they were blamed for the collapse. The Barabag so, were. Yeah. It was seen so, as a failure of their system. Yeah. So the Muhajega land was the most valuable piece of their grazing system. It was also the land that grew crops best and it was the land that people took from them illegally. And they were left with other land that was not very rich and couldn't sustain them. They had to have access to the Muhajega for some of the time and then go back and give that more arid, less fertile land time to recover. Um, But if they were confined to that more arid, less fertile land continually and with no access to the Muhajega, they would overgraze and overexploit and denude those resources and that's when the finger was pointed at them for overgrazing. And people like Nieri would point to that as a way of verifying their methodology as opposed to the Yeah, this was a primitive Mm. system. In fact, it was very sophisticated and it was being undermined Mm. by outsiders. So what happened next? You've uh, you've set up, you've you've got your, uh, you're you're set up at Laguajan and uh, how did you then start to interact with the Well, I ask you to go... that I, I said, you know, I explained my purpose and I said part of my purpose was I'll need to know how many cattle people have and I'll need to know what they're doing, where they're sent, taking them. and Why did you need to know that? Well, this cattle were their lives and um, if you wanted to understand Barabaic society and its mode of production and the, the effect of imposed change upon it, you had to know what you were dealing with, how many and whether they were trends up or down or whatever. Um, and given that land was such a key component of the struggle to survive, I needed to know what the effect was of taking some land from them. In order to make their argument Yeah, so them. I needed to know cattle numbers and where the cattle were and who had them and what have you. So pastoralists, nomadic cattle herd, livestock herders, traditionally don't like telling you what they've got it's partly cultural, but I also think it's about fear that they'll be taxed or that people will think they've got too many and might take some from them. Remember, they've got a history of this, of being fined by government for intransigence or whatever. So um, I said, Gilligal, you know, I'm here. I'm not here for a holiday. I need to do work and I need to meet people and talk about their lives and their domestic economy. I need to count people's cattle. And he said, oh, well, you know, ooh. So that was a big deal for them, opening up about how many cattle they had. Yeah, and their domestic economy. I said, I want to go into every homestead. I want to know how many people live there. I want to know how many cattle they've got, what they're earning money from, what they're spending money on, you know. And how how many homesteads are there? Well, there were... I think there were 23, I can't remember now, in Laguajan on this low flat hill, I think there were 23 homesteads. You couldn't see, you couldn't see them. You, your neighbour you couldn't see but you knew where he was. And how many Barabag is, is that? Um, I think there are about 200-odd, including children. And how many Barabag in total live on the Hanang Plains? Oh, well, something between thirty and 50,000. So just let me complete, it's important you understand. So but I said, Gilly, you know, I want to, to meet everybody and 
count cattle and enter their homesteads to find out about their domestic economy of everybody who lives on Laguajan. And he said, oh, okay, we better call a neighbourhood council. So Laguajan had its own council. And that's where Gidegala introduced me and I explained what I was doing there. They were all interested. I'd moved in with Gidegala, you know, <laughs> my Toyota, and I was living in his homestead and they wanted to know what the hell was going on. There were lots of rumours. Um, and at this meeting, all the, the, the household head of all these homesteads on Laguajan came. There's a photo of that meeting in the book. And um, Gidegala introduced me and invited me to explain to my neighbours um, of the neighbourhood what I was doing and what I wanted to do. So and how soon into you settling in Laguajan was that meeting? Month or so, yeah. The other thing to – and they, they were fantastic, I think partly because of Gilligala. He was so revered. Um, and when I explained it, for those who didn't understand, who didn't speak Swahili, although they're nearly all you spoke Swahili pretty well, um, once they understood and there was no malice – they actually said, Charles, <laughs> they, they said, Charles, you can do what you like. Count our cattle, ask us about our domestic economy, etc. But can we have access to your car? <laughs> to your what? Your... My car. Ah, oh, right. Yep. <laughs> that was the, you know, that was the biggest thing that I, what did I they? What did they need access to that Well, for? they wanted, you know, lifts to the market and carry the grain sacks from town and you know, carry sick people to hospital. And so that's a whole other story how I managed that. But they were very happy that there was a car in the neighbourhood and they said I could do anything, which was fine. What I didn't do for six months was do any research. Well, not formal research. I just integrated as best I could. So I went to weddings, I went to pub uh, drinking sessions, you had to gain their trust first and yeah, foremost. Yeah, just to, just to get, become a member, get people used to me, chat to people socially, you know, just yarn and just... So when, six months after my arrival, when I started doing the hard numbers, you know, actually with a counter counting people's cattle and things, people were relaxed. If I'd started and right away with the hard stuff, with notepad and writing and... Would have come across mercenary. Well, you know, I wonder mm. what they would have thought. Um, what were what were the drinking sessions? Well, um, the Batabaig make a mead they call gamunga, which is brewed in a a large gourd, thirty liters or so, called a gasuda. Now, it's a it's it's a medium to reach God. It's they don't well they do drink for pleasure, uh, but tr- customarily. Drinking gamunga is a spiritual process. Elders come together for a reason and they brew this. It's to celebrate or to inquire or to, to ask uh, uh, a witch doctor to bring rain or something. There'll be an occasion where they, it's, or at a funeral or burial, they brew the beer and the elders come around it and they have to finish it in a sitting so there might only be five of you and there may be 30 litres of this stuff. How alcoholic was it? Well, I didn't do it. In test. your experience. Well, <laughs> well enough to get you completely legless. Um, it's warm, it's sweet and it's alcoholic. 
and you drink it. Uh, you drink away till you fall over, basically. You'll but piss where you're sitting. That's one of the funnier parts in the book is you describing your first drinking session with them and about you having a runoff to oh, well, of course it's so, everywhere. <laughs> it's so sweet. It's made of raw honey, uh, water and root of aloe and that's the yeasting ingredient that produces the with the sugar of the honey produces the alcohol it's brewed over 24 hours over on a next to a fire it's warm when you drink like a mead you know if you've been snow skiing and you've drunk um schnapps at lunchtime you know you ski very well in the afternoon you know fearless you think i've never actually seen snow ever (laughs) yeah i know well, I hope you do. And, At some um, stage. It just, it just looks wet and uncomfortable. Well, and it, But not after a, a big session no. of schnapps. And the Baravag, um, it's like that. So if you drink too much, it's very, it's very tangy, nice, sweet drink with, you know, and if you drink too much or too quickly, you know, you get bilious. And that's where I had to beg my leave on my early sessions because I didn't measure it. They're all pros, you know, the old men. I'd have to leave beg my leave and go outside and bring it all up. And they could hear this, of course, and they laughed. And I guess that every young Barabag man probably succumbed to over-drinking and being sick. Um, And, of course, you get inebriated such that on one occasion, you know, I couldn't find my way home. Wandering through the bush, thinking I knew. So you left the drinking session? No, yeah, I left the the drinking session. The the Gasuda would be finished. Um, Not everyone would sleep. I I often wanted to go home. Um, Sleeping with Barabaig men is a pretty uncomfortable night. You might be four or five on a, a stick bed with the cowhide on it. They all sleep together, don't they? Yeah, the men sleep mm. together. Uh, it takes a bit of getting used to. Um, so I would head home and, as I say, i get lost and stumble into... Anyway, they, they were very good about it. And women would shout from a homestead, what are you doing? I'd shout, you know, where, hello, could I come in? And they'd say, Charles, where are you? You shouldn't be here. You know, you're a house, your homestead. Gidegar lives the other direction. <laughs> they were emasculating for you, Charles. Very, and they would send someone out to take me by the hand and take me home. Um, I, those drinking sessions were very important. They... Um, sang, you know, songs to God and asked for his help on matters. And uh, um, I was accorded, you know, on occasions exalted status. I had the wax of the honey rubbed on my face. I had to drink the first pouled, which is a horn, so that they pour it out. And the, the, the dignitary, the person of higher status at the drinking session, gets the first one and drinks, have to drink a whole horn full of this mead. And they afforded you that status being a guest? Oh, oh yeah, guest, basically, mm. you know. They were according me this status w- w- as a courtesy, which was very nice. And They seem they seemed so accommodating. Oh, they were. Once they trusted me and uh, I think they were led to believe or had discerned that I was going to be not only benevolent, that I might actually be able to help them. Um, and we talked, you know, we talked about cattle. And if I went to Darusha, I'd pick up drugs for their livestock, syringes and things. I mean, <laughs> they were starved of all this stuff because the government didn't care about them, didn't provide these things. Well, were you right about your philosophy of how you think? Uh 
people like the Barabag should be helped. Could you just talk about that, empowering them rather than deciding for them? Well, I mean, I, I believe this in any context. Um, and certainly um, the Barabag had a very clear view what they needed to um, survive and flourish. And they were denied most of it, um, which was sad. Um, and trying to tell them what they needed or wanted or what they should do was hopeless because they were already resistant. Every contact they'd had with outsiders had brought them harm one way or another. So if someone else from outside came in and said, you should do this or you must do that, they just, they would nod. They're very courteous. So it wasn't just an ethical approach but a practical approach to... Well, yes, but it's also ethical. I think Mm. you should extend the dignity to people and the rights to them to express their own views, even if they're contrary to yours, and find a way. Um, if the Barabag had been supported um, and allowed to have their what they deemed to be important, which was access to land and um, veterinary aid and such like, um, but also education and Western health, and they would they were early adopters. They would have flourished. Oh, they yeah. were they were quick adopters. They knew a good thing when they saw it. Yeah. So you spend the first six months of your time with the Barabag uh, not strictly studying um, their agricultural practices but uh, becoming uh, part of their community. After that six months had ended, what happened? Well, then I had to start. I had to understand what my sample was, which was Laguajan. I identified that as my sample. It was in the. It was fantastic. It was a lovely place. It was the middle of deep in the heart of. Barabai country, and because of Gidigala, it was the heart of their cultural uh, society. He was one of the more respected Barabai. He, he was the le- he was the head of the Arajiga clan, and the Arajiga clan have a special role at burials, and burials are hugely significant, and other matters. So he is revered, and he lived far from Western. Contamination. I mean, I was in the I was in the heart of traditional Barabaic society. It couldn't have gone better for you. Really. Couldn't have gone better. And you know, much of this is good fortune. Mm. Um, uh, I also knew a good thing when I saw it, but I was offered things that really I had no idea about that turned out to be very, very advantageous. Such as well, like meeting Pierce. Uh, taking his word, starting at his father. Then putting in a good word for you. <laughs> and, then he, and then meeting Gidigala and then he and I, we got on personally very well. Um, even his wives and uh, children, we all got on famously and um, I'm very lucky. There are plenty of Barabai men I didn't like and some didn't like me. When I say didn't like, you know, that I didn't admire or particularly warm to. Of course, they're just like any other society. Mm. And um, But I picked a good one. You know, Gidigalas are just the most lovely man, gentle man, extremely powerful, not in a material sense but spiritually. And you, you write very fondly of them in the book. Uh, yeah. Mm. Well, when, we, um, when I took Jane and the kids out to meet them, which was a good 10, 20 years after I'd been there, and I told them, you will not know me until you meet these people I lived with, you know. It'll explain a lot about me, why I 
drink yogurt in the morning and these things. And um, we we got out there and when we arrived. With Jane and Jane and the and kids family. in the car and Simon. Uh, sorry, just quickly, how much how much longer after your time with the Barabug was this? About 20 years. 20 years. Yeah. Um, Gidigler had moved from Lagoja and he was somewhere else but I was guided to where he was and when we we pulled up and I switched off the engine and then Gidigler and his wives came out of the homestead to greet me. They knew I was coming. I told them I was coming and and they knew that if a car was way out there, they knew who it was. Anyway, I got out, of course, and greeted them and I just completely broke down. I was deliriously happy. You must have missed them so much. Well, I didn't realise how deep it was, you know. It was steep. Um, and I remember Damarega who who looked after he, – she, she was his uh, leveretic wife. So he, she, she was the wife of his father who came to Gidigala on his father's death. So that's what the – that's a leveretic union in anthropology. Were there were there many things that were part of their culture that were just so like like that? I mean, that in a Western context would just be so strange and alien as, as an idea. Were there many things like that that oh. were uh, in opposition to the way you th- think about things? Yes, yeah. but you know. Uh, but I guess then they, they have the same thing about us. Oh, exactly. Exactly. You, yeah. you think we? You think what we do is normal? Mm. There's no such thing. It all works very well. I mean, they're polygamous, so there's lots of wives. Men have lots of wives. Um, I, I explain in the book wh- why that is and why it's advantageous. It works. Not always. Works in what sense? In that- well, that, 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 you know, multiple wives live happily in the homestead or in homesteads. Uh, their commitment is for the family, the broad family to survive and it be creates successful. more security, I yeah, imagine. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, anyway, um, what was I referring to? So uh, how do we uh, get uh, You were talking about uh, Gidigala's father's wife. Yeah. Um, oh, Damarega. Damarega. <laughs> so when I got out of the car and they came out to greet me and I broke down, you know, just embarrassingly, just completely broke down. Damarega came over. I'd shaken Gidigala's hand. I'm streaming with tears, you know, guffing away. And Dummer Charles, don't cry. No need to cry. <laughs> Very humbling. So at what stage did the Canadian wheat field or the Canadian wheat um, scheme come into things and the atrocities uh, that uh, were being committed against the Barabag start to happen? Mm-hmm. My recollection is, and I'm sorry I should know, that the... The land was first taken in the late 60s, early 70s. By? The government. Yep. So the government pinned a notice on a notice board in Katesh that this land was going to be taken for a government scheme. Um, The government had already done a deal with the Canadian government to grow wheat. We're talking talking about 100,000 acres. Um, And... um, the first, the Barabai who lived on this land knew about it when they were, a car pulled up and they were told to move off. They were trespassers on their own land. And was that while you were with them or that was in the it 60s It started and 70s? before me. Yeah. You know, yep. When I was there, they were expanding it. So I didn't, I wasn't there at the initial 
alienation, but I was there when they expanded it because, you know, it was going to go on and on. Um, so that's when I – now this is where my work suddenly got hijacked because it was so clear about the injustice of what was happening and the illegality of what was happening. I said to them, look, you know, this, they shouldn't be doing this and um, – I can help you, but we'll need lawyers and so that's what I organised, got them lawyers and we took the minister and the uh, agricultural corporation that was growing the wheat to court. Did your work uh, stop as soon as uh, the the wheat scheme became involved? What I did was actually bend my work towards the whole issue of land and land alienation, land use and land alienation as the prime change that was being enforced upon them that was affecting them, their production, their society, etc. And so what happened next then? So the the Canadian wheat scheme was encroached upon their land in coordination with the Tanzanian government yep. uh, and perhaps even just to give a more visceral impression of uh, the atrocities, what are some of the more specific examples of uh, what was being done uh, by this scheme? Right. So the scheme was largely contiguous, so, you know, you couldn't cross it without trespassing on it. So the Barabai who might have lived to the north of the land might have wanted to go to a, a place, a burial mound or a salt lick or a water source to the south. And customarily they'd walk, you know, as the crow flies near enough. Now they couldn't. They had to go right round this 100,000 acre uh, Because the government had deemed that as yeah. private property. But and when So the Barabai didn't understand this and didn't like it anyway. They walked on anyway and that's where they'd be arrested. So they'd walk across the wheat fields and suddenly the farm workers would arrive in their Land Rovers and uh, scare their cattle away and, and beat, beat these Barabai men up. Now, to, I'm, I wasn't present at any of these um, atrocities. atrocities, but um, my understanding is the Barabai would take it um, Take what? Take the beating. I mean, they, oh, were, right. they were overpowered. They, we, the men who worked for the uh, wheat scheme were armed. Not always, but they had access to guns. And um, usually there'd be only one Barabai herdsman or herd boy and he'd be beaten up and tortured. I mean, uh, they would confiscate cattle as a fine and things like that. So it was very tough. And, and were these were the people who were committing these atrocities uh, Tanzanian citizens or representatives Ta- of the Canadian? Tanzanian citizens, yep. employees of the scheme. Right. The the Canadians were largely advisors uh, and planners and what have you. So it was mainly Tanzanian. Now, when women came on the farms, then you know other things, worse things happened. Now, you know, you know what gleaning is. Gleaning no. is a biblical term. It's when People go on to farmland to pick up the residue after harvest. Poor people have a right to go on to land and pick up the grain that's dropped. So the harvest is taken away but always some grain is dropped and poor people rely on that grain that's dropped and that's called gleaning, which is picking up that grain. So poor Barabai women 
remembering that all the Barabaga who lived around this farm became impoverished by this because water sources and salt licks and everything were suddenly denied them. So women were coming on to glean wheat that was not picked up by the harvester and that's when they were apprehended as trespassers or thieves and that's where they were beaten and raped. And but the thieves, in quotation marks, of a useless yeah. thing that they weren't even going to collect. A thing that would have been left in the ground, yeah. Oh. Mm. And it's interesting, you write in the book about how there was a moment where you were culturally on the fence between your Western background and the Barabike. You weren't sure whether – you weren't sure – how to identify because you'd been so uh, subsumed into Barabai culture but at the same time you couldn't deny your Western heritage and that that sort of impeded on your judgment as to what your role was uh, within the Barabai community. I found it really interesting how, uh, was it uh, Joel Strauss, your um, your American friend, when he visited you, said to you... Uh, don't pretend you're don't, a Barabai. Don't pretend you're a Barabai but give them what you have to offer. Oh, that's right. uh, yeah. And what did you have to offer them? Well, I had, I had the knowledge that they could defend their legal rights. There was a system, a legal system, and there were lawyers who could help them defend those rights. And um, I, start, I raised money in England and contacted lawyers in Tanzania to conduct the case. So we, I raised the means to pay for this. I also went to international human rights groups like Survival International and these things to raise a campaign in defence of Batabaig rights. The outcome of this was that the Canadians, once it got too hot, you know, and I revealed these abuses and they they withdrew, the Canadians withdrew, which was not what I wanted because I we had more chance to bring pressure on the Tanzanian government through the Canadians than to have the Canadians out of the picture and be dealing with just the Tanzanians. Is that because, in a sense, they could be held to a higher standard? Well, they they understood it and they didn't want to be associated with it. And but they, they just wanted w- to do it on the download without people noticing. Yeah, but once it was out, they wanted to fix it because it, the, the impact on them politically was terrible. Yeah, so embarrassing. Embarrassed, seriously embarrassing. So they just ran, they cut and ran. So then we were left with dealing with the government who didn't like the battle bargain, didn't care about it and just wanted to get it done, you know. Uh, so did so did Canada pull out of the scheme then? Yeah. Yeah. So you were so then the case was directed towards the Tanzanian government. Well the case was always directed at the Tanzanian government. It was the moral and political pressure that we could apply from the Canadians to get change that we lost. So we ended up going to court. Where in Tanz in Arusha, the Arusha High Court in Arusha, with the we brought the Minister for Lands and the or was he Agriculture Lands and Agri I don't know what his title was now offhand, and the uh, the company the the government agricultural corporation who were the managers of the property, took them to court for illegal alienation of customary lands. Now, the British had. Um, brought in um, legislation to protect customary lands. But what, what, sorry, just before you go ahead, what is the British, what is the British government's involvement in Tanzania at this stage? Like none, what, why? None. But when Tanzania became independent, it, it carried all the existing laws. Right. So it wasn't a revolution. It was a handover of power. And um, so the 
early land legislation, etc., was all adopted by the independent country and the court system was all British designed. It was all adopted by the independent That's another nation. reason why you were sort of custom made to defend them is because of... That you know, I understood your, it. You understood it, That's yeah. right. So the British had safeguarded customary lands um, in legislation and that was what we took to court to say that... NAFCO, the corporation and the minister, had failed to adhere to the law of alienation of customary lands. What was that like going to court with? Um, did you did you go by yourself, or did you did you bring representatives of the Barabag with you? Well, there were there were five or six plaintiffs, all Tanzanian, all had lost land or had tr- customary claim to the land that was taken from them. Uh, I was an advisor. Uh, I brought in- an English lawyer with me who worked with Survival International, but we used the lawyers in Tanzania, the um, Legal Aid Committee of the University of Dar es Salaam, who conducted the case. But they were supported by Gordon Bennett, a human rights lawyer from London, and I as a what's called expert witness on customary land title, the Barabai customary land title. And how much time had you spent with the Barabai uh, when those court proceedings began? Well, um, I appeared in the first High Court case. I was there a couple of days. My testimony nearly took a day. I flew out from London with Gordon and um, he sat with the counsel for the Barabai and I was Call to the stand to attest to customary claim. But how much time had you spent with the Barabag between your, oh. your first day in the tent and when the court proceedings began? How long had you spent with them? Oh, the two years. This was all after my study. Right. This, I was doing this out of London. Yeah. So I, my thesis was in and my academic commitment was completed. This was all the international campaign and legal push after. Yeah. And so if you hadn't gone on your mission to Tanzania... Uh, to study why, you know, villagisation wasn't tenable, they wouldn't have had the expert witness that they needed. Who knows what would have happened? Mm. Who knows? So what was the outcome of the court proceedings? Well, we won the first case. Um, We brought two cases about two particular pieces of land. There were seven farms, so we brought first case on one piece of land and the second case on another piece of land. The first case, we won it. The judge ruled that NAFCO had breached customary rights and that they were trespassers. They had illegally alienated the land from the customary landholders and we thought, yippee, you know. Um, But they appealed immediately and on appeal they ruled against that judgment on a technicality. What was the technicality? Well, the the first was that um, some of the people who were listed in the plaint who'd lost their customary rights were uh, of Somali origin, so they were not Tanzanian. This was another legacy of the British legislation that a citizen of the new independent country of Tanganyika, as it was, um did not include Somalis who had come down from Somalia as traders and truckers and what have you. They would not be accorded citizenship and did not could not have customary rights. They weren't legitimate plaintiffs in that sense. That's right. Mm. So, um, 
Yeah, they ruled that the uh, judgment was flawed. So what happened next? Well, um, the the judge also admonished the, the the legal case for not bringing the two cases together because they were materially the same, even though they related to two bits of land. So he ruled the other case also. Uh, never was heard. He ruled the other case was uh, invalid and uh, there was no case to answer. So... The Barabag in a in a in a, a high, in an appeal court judgment had lost their customary rights. Did the Barabag eventually win the rights to their no, their land? No, not at all. No, and so to this day, they don't so what the happened? The the Canadians pulled out, and the Canadians were embarrassed. And the Canadians, through their embassy in Dar es Salaam, tried to apply pressure to tidy clean this all up, and. The Tanzanian government, in its wisdom, said, "All right, well, we'll privatise the farms. We want out as well. We don't like sitting on this dung heap." Um, so they then offered the farms to um, pr- for private gain. So the government corporation withdrew, and the farms were sold to wealthy Tanzanians. Yes, um, but one of the farms was given back to the Tanzanians as a concession. Back to the Tanzanians or back to the back Barabag? to the Barabag? I'm sorry, mm. back to the Barabag as a concession. How big? How big was the how, ten thousand acres? And um, the sadness of that is, the rich people who lived in and around that area, who were Barabag or not Barabag, grabbed it, started farming wheat because <laughs> there was money in wheat. So they've essentially lost all their land. Well, they lost that Muhajega land, that really valuable, rich land. The other thing that happened, Mount Hanang, which is a dormant volcano which dominates the area and which is why the district is called Hanang District, um, was a forest reserve. But lots of people lived in there, Iraq people, Nyaturu people and Barabaig people lived in there, in the forest. And then the government quite separately made a judgment that everybody had to get out of the forest because, of course, there's international pressure to protect forests, you know, the wildlife lobby and everything. So everyone was thrown out of the forest reserve around this volcano and they were settled on that land that had been given to the Barabai. Right. You know, just goes on and on. The Barabai were... in terms of consideration, were all the ways the least considered in any of this action. And so, what are the living conditions like for the Barabag now? Well, I, you know, of course, I don't exactly know, um, but from what I understand, things are pretty tough. Um, there are those, and I assume Gidiglo's one, who are still living traditionally as far as is possible. But the little boys who sat on my knee and, you know hung around my hut uh, are now in their 20s and uh, talking to me on email. Uh, They've got educated, they've got jobs, they're not herders, they're not living as herders with the Barabag. So I think what you see in the book, what I captured as pretty well their traditional culture is by and large, gone. I know when we went back with the kids, Jane and the kids, you know, Barabag women weren't wearing traditional dress. They were wearing f- clothing aids shipped over from America by missionaries. And how do they feel about that and how do you feel about that? 
Are they? I, I imagine can't. they're almost nostalgic for. Well, I the can't times speak. They- I don't know about that. I I can't speak for them. Um, I think it's a lot more convenient to wear a cotton dress from America than it is to wear a leather skirt with tassels that takes many hours to produce and then to be sewn with beads and, you know, hours and hours and hours of work. Um, It's quite sad almost to think that you, well, great in some ways, but you almost just, your experience of the Barabag was at the tail end of their mm. existence in their traditional ways of life. And I think... If there's nothing else the book offers, it is a, a glimpse of their traditional culture that's probably by and large gone. What, what were your emotions when that, uh, when that appeal was successful and everything you and the Barabag were fighting for was defeated? Were you well, like, I was, I was almost embarrassed? Well, at, no, never at, embarrassed, but very, very... Um, embarrassed at, you know, a, a Western... I mean, uh, had, uh, wasn't West, it wasn't... Westerners' fault. Um, it was the greed and ignorance and prejudice of Modernized elite Tanzanians yeah. who were wanting to abandon their traditional way of life as fast as they couldn't adopt mm. what they saw as better from the West, materially and commercially. Mm. Um, and the Barabai were just casualties of that drive. The country was actually run by people who didn't like or understand the Barabai. So they were, you know, um, you know, growing wheat was very profitable. This country grew wheat very well. Um, and, you know, the Barabag weren't going to get in the way. You and I have talked before about the treatment of the Uyghurs in uh, uh, Xinjiang. Uh, and I guess the overarching paradigm in that situation is uh, the valuing of wealth over lives. And, you know, countries won't sanction China for these Mm. human rights atrocities because they're all uh, economically dependent on China. Uh, And I guess this paradigm applies to atrocities committed throughout the world and the Barabag are a perfect example. But do you think it's possible to set up structures in society that are based on incentives other than money and resources? Well, you'd hope so. But, look, we don't even do it well in this country, Mm. you know, Black incarceration, deaths in custody, uh, land rights, you know, we have a terrible record. The Chinese are dealing a fatal blow to the uh, Uyghurs. Um, It won't be stopped, uh, sadly. There'll be protests. We may be able to salvage something, some Uyghur identity, some Uyghur comfort. Do you think think it's, it's about to turn a bit more blatantly... Violent in Xinjiang? Do you think? It's, oh, I mean, it looks, I, I'm not a. But it looks like it doesn't. It, it could. Um, of course, it's it's as bad as it is because the Uyghurs and other minorities actually rose up mm. to resist the Han Chinese taking over. It's like Western Papua. You know, they they move the Indonesians move Javanese settlers in, take the land, and the indigenous Papuans are pushed into the forest until they. Push back, and then of course the Indonesian state comes in, bang, mm. and that's happening in Xinjiang because the Chinese government's you know not mm. going to put up with any resistance. They're going to move in, lock them up, and mm. sterilize them. Whatever else they do. Yeah, when Xi Jinping took over, yeah. there were lots of uh, terrorist attacks. 
committed by the Uyghurs against the, the Han Chinese and the Chinese yeah. government in Aramki, the, uh, the capital in Xinjiang. And yeah. it's the first time that I ever sympathised with terrorism. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. I really sort of. It's like that's a that's a terrorism that. I mean, obviously, killing people is uh, never good, but it's it was it's a a cause that I can certainly sympathise with and get around. Which you know, yeah, uh, it's yeah. um so sad state, and we're losing the the intricacy and beauty and lessons that other cultures hold that. Make up humanity in our, in its various and wondrous forms, by the dominant groups uh, obliterating the minorities, mm. so that we'll, all, you know, it, the logic would say we'll all end up the same. Even Europeans and Chinese will eventually be so integrated that there'll be so little variety as right. to be non-consequential. That's the logical extension of what's happening. It's almost created a paradigm where. Uh, we feel obliged to homogenise cultures. Do you know what I mean? It's like globalism is like this driving force that's making us feel like we all need to become part of this one culture and society. But yeah, it's, it's obviously sad. Not. I think that is a is a true cost of what's going on. Um, but an inevitable. Well, path. I, I think we should respect and support difference and mm. um, allow minorities to flourish and mm. be respected. I just, with, with the whole situation in Xinjiang, because every time someone criticises uh, what's going on there, uh, people, I mean, the Chinese first and foremost will say that they're re-education camps and that yeah. they're trying to unify. They want to modernise. But just uh, the, the thing I, I look to specifically is the sterilisation because it's why else would you sterilise people yeah. if you didn't intend on violently ending them? Yeah, it's, it's, it's genocide. It is genocide, and I'm, it's just so it's, it's so scary to think that you know five years from now we might have you know millions of dead bodies on our hands in Xinjiang and yeah, I mean if there is insurrection, although I imagine they've got it clamped down that tight, the insurrection will be impossible. They, they seem. I reckon they're just doing it all through sterilisation. They're just gonna we're just going to control these people and slowly sterilise all their women so that they can't reproduce, mm. and it's sort of like a sleight of hand way of committing genocide. Well, well, hardly sleight of hand, but yeah. Well, less, I guess, this you know, is, less. This is um, what we're looking at. And inter- international pressure is not going to work because the chi- you poke the Chinese on this stuff and they just lock down. I mean, they're not open mm. for international pressure or anything. Mm. It's very sad and we're so lucky in this country, although our Indigenous First Nations here have suffered terribly and they continue to, so we're not... Blameless either. Mm. Back to your time in Tanzania, well before you spent time with the Barabag, you developed an open accounting system uh, when uh, you went to Tanzania so as to prevent the misappropriation of charitable funds. Just how common is the misappropriation of charitable funds in countries like Tanzania? I can't give you a categorical answer. Uh, It wasn't wasn't just about misappropriation. So I was investing in communal projects in newly formed villages in Tanzania, but it was always commanded by the village leadership. So the potential for corruption was evident. But what what I was looking at is making the villagers owned the project theoretically. I wanted them to know what was happening, what it was producing, 
so they had a stake. So that, that, that's, uh, that's one of the reasons that I was lucky enough to be employed by Oxfam because they funded that open accounting system that I employed on those projects. But is that a common thing in Africa in general? Is there well, a yes. Of funds? They're, they're, <laughs> I, people ask me this often, you know, in Tanzania at that level it's about a few eggs here or there. Obviously at central government level you get white-collar crime as you do here. In either case, what's going on in Tanzania is small beer to what goes on in the West. I mean, we're talking about serious crime, mm. not murder. I'm talking about white-collar crime where people are corrupt, mm. Ponzi scheme, you name it. The financial we're, crisis. We're, we're, mm. we're, our society's very bad on this stuff. Did, did life in Australia and England feel almost a bit silly by comparison with the lifestyle of the Barabag? And did you question everyone around you's preoccupation with money and status and just the rat race in general? What I can say is that it was much easier to go out to the Barabag than it was to come home. When I came back and walked into supermarkets, you know, I was disgusted. I felt awful. Why? Well, the, the excess, the choice, you know, the things way beyond our needs. Living with the Barabag, need was crucial. You ate for sustenance. You didn't eat for pleasure. In, in Melbourne, we eat for pleasure. Um, and so it was very difficult and adjusting was much more difficult. Well, in summation then, what did you learn most from the Barabag and what do you think they learned most from you? I can't speak for them, but um, I learnt more about myself than I learnt about the Barabag. That might sound strange. Uh, it forced me to look at myself in a light that I couldn't have looked at had I not gone out to the Barabag. So my own weaknesses, prejudices and, and, inc and incapacities, I had to reassess my place in the world, my purpose in life, Etc. And what do you think that is? <laughs> well, what motivates you? Well, many things. I mean, it's not something you can say briefly, but I mean, I've committed my life to addressing injustice and trying to uh, pursue equality. Um, I'm now, you know, I'm at the age now where I'm no longer angry, and but I, I'm still wedded to change, you know. But I'm, you know, I spent many years as an activist and all the costs that that brought upon me and the disappointments and the hardship. But uh, now I'm at, you know, in my mid-70s, I, I have to leave it to others and I encourage others and I encourage you, as you know, to, to pick up the mantle because this is a young person's endeavour, You young people, and I, I think there's much hope. I think um, the young people I know knew at their stage in life know a lot more than I ever did. I learnt on the hoof, you know, I stumbled into things where I think the next generation are informed and um, some are angry enough to act and to try and bring about change and that's a great thing. It's a broad question but how do you feel about the world in general at the moment? Do you, any events... Do any events or the general trajectory of the world at the moment, what worries you? 
Well, I mean, obviously the big things worry me, like human rights abuse on a grand scale in China and uh, climate change, um, inequality, the growth in inequality in Western society where people are getting richer and richer and a greater number of people are missing out on the advantages of that are on offer. Um, but there are many things that inspire me in the arts, um, cultural expression, individual endeavour, achievement, you know, literature. and there are th Every now and then I'm inspired by something or someone that gives me hope. But there are huge forces against us and I'm aware of that. Um, as I say, at my stage in life, you know, I can't take these on anymore. Um, and I hope reason and fairness prevail, but I'm not a... I'm not a doomsday kind of person, um, but the forces are great. Because it's almost a naive question, but it's like, do you think in the long scheme of history, uh, love or whatever word you want to use prevails, or do you think our worst angels uh, are more powerful moving forward? I, I think we're flawed as a, uh, as a species, um, I think what will happen will be catastrophic. You know, it'll be um, shifting in the Earth's axis or, you know, climate change or an ice age or a meteor will strike us down. I think ultimately that's what will happen because I don't see us getting off this boat. It's quite, like, yeah. it's quite depressing, but it's, it, it, just seems, it just seems like if there is another war... It, it'll be the last war. Possibly, you see. That could be our own making. That's scary. Mate. Yeah, it is very scary. And, you know, warfare's changed now. It's, uh, it'll be viruses and uh, uh, drones and, you know, people won't even see it coming. It's, have, it's have insidious. You, have you seen uh, any of this stuff in the news about the origins of the COVID pandemic, about how it actually started? Well, they suggested, yeah. I had, um, I had a guy on uh, the podcast few episodes back called uh, Dr. Stephen Quay and he just was outlining all the evidence that points to this being a laboratory accident out of Wuhan yeah. and I'm just – it's just worrying to think – I almost don't want that truth to come out because then that sort of checkmates America into a point where they, they're going to have to demand reparations in whatever way that – and then China's just not going to kowtow and it's going to become a big ego game between the Whether it's uh – true or not doesn't matter what is truth is that this will be the next this is the way you can take over a country you can introduce a virus wipe them out you know um it almost that's almost points to another weakness with globalization i mean if if we weren't a globalized society the pandemic would have been far less damaging yes, than it's been sure sure um you know, you just you infect a carrier, a super spreader, and you fly that person into a, your enemies, and and it, with a much stronger virus than COVID nineteen, and wipe them out. It seems strange to me that it hasn't been done before. Well, I think this. I mean, if you're if you take a dark view of life and human conduct i mean it's inevitable that someone they did they mustard gas i mean you know we're capable of the most dreadful it's ways a, it's, of defeating our enemies it's kind of a 
misconception to think that the more technologically advanced we get, the more ethically advanced oh, we get. Oh, sadly. Rather it's than probably we get the, the opposite. Yeah, That's right. The more technology we have. You can, you can do it at, you know, before you had to stab mm. someone. That's quite tough. Now you can gas them. Now you can, now you can. You don't even have to leave a room. You can do it from here. And Well, I guess we can uh, wrap this one up then, Charles. Um, I really appreciate you coming on and talking about your time with the Barabag. Just for the listeners, what's the uh, title of the book again and where can they get a copy? Well, the book's called Barabag, Life, Love and Death on Tanzania's Hanang Plains. It's published by uh, River Books. It's available uh, online, Amazon, um, all those. What's There's an Australian book distributor's name I can't remember. You can get it. Um, and, yeah, if you're interested to learn about the Barabaig and see the beauty and wonder of their culture, yeah, have a look. Thanks a lot, Charles. And it's my pleasure. See you soon. Lovely. Lovely.